And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley, and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman, and uh, you know he spent many weeks here in the summer trying to just come up with anything to talk about Bruce. And suddenly, right at the start of training camp, we're hit with probably the biggest college football news story of at least this year, if not several years. Urban Meyer may not be the coach of Ohio State anymore. At the very least, he's on administrative leave, and this all happened about 24 hours before we're recording this. All right, so, too, so we've had a lot of back and forth on it, and we're going to have my former colleague, Brett McMurphy, who was the reporter who broke uh, this story and the subsequent story, and we're going to get into that with Brett on a lot of all sides of it, not just the reporting, but also there's a unique dynamic with Brett, who technically right now is a free agent, even though he's still on ESPN's dime, and how that, how that worked out for him. But I do want to, I, I think we should kind of explore where we think this is headed. Obviously, Urban Meyer is somebody we both have covered for a long time. Knowing what you know right now, does this change your opinion of him? You know, somebody on Twitter yesterday pointed out that we had a discussion on here after your Urban story from this spring, mm-hmm. where we both took turns just gushing about how he's turned the corner and put some of the issues from Florida in the past and he seems like a changed man. So if you ask me if my opinion has changed, yes. I don't think, uh, uh, I'm not saying all that was, was, was fake, but you know, and you said this in your column on the athletic, the same thing that got him in trouble at Florida in terms of his tainted legacy there, giving kids second and third chances, it seems to will end up being his downfall here. Probably. He gave way too much benefit of the doubt and way too much loyalty to a completely expendable wide receivers coach who clearly, clearly was somebody who should not be anywhere near 18 to 22 year old college football players. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think, look, you can have more than one thought on this. I I don't doubt that Urban Meyer has better kids in his program across the board at in Ohio State than he does at UF. I know from talking to people who've been around both sides of it who were with them in Gainesville and also now with them in Columbus but again it just comes back to I keep thinking of this and even when we watch the video clips of him from you know we were both at Big Ten Media Days and he's talking about E plus R equals O and this you know all this leadership treatment and and perspective he has and potentially 
his whole undoing of his career could be, be, be due to him having a guy around him that, he, as you said, gave him the benefit of the doubt uh, way too many times, who was a clear liability. And you talk to people in coaching, and you start to hear more and more stories, not necessarily of the domestic violence part, but just a guy, a guy who's late for meetings and just not responsible and just kind of seems like, in a lot of ways, is a, was a train wreck. And you're like, wait a minute, it's Ohio State. You could have anybody you know, in that role, pretty much, to be that position coach. And that's what you chose, and that's what you stayed with. And also, I think what's, what beyond that is like, a lot of people are cynical and they'll go, well, Urban Meyer's making 7 or $8 million a year, and it all comes back to winning. In this case, I don't think this had anything to do with winning. Zach Smith was not, you know, the considered by anybody the best position coach, you know, in the country. I mean, nobody ever talked about that. He wasn't like gonna the guys at Florida who he gave multiple chances to, whether it's Chris Rainey or you can go on down the list with some of these guys. That was about trying to win games because that was about we're going to try to get the most talented guys on the field. In this case, it was out of loyalty, as you know, as most people know by now. Later, all Bruce was Urban Meyer's mentor and Zach Smith, the position coach who got fired. That's Earl Bruce's grandson. And the relationship goes back a long ways. But it's just like, for what? You know, you just look at it and go, man. And as we're taping this right now, I think both of us think there's a real strong chance he may not coach at Ohio State again. Yeah. And I think that there's two things that, you know, I mean, look, in the last 24 hours, everybody uh, that, that pays any attention to college football has weighed in with an opinion on this. I think you and I, obviously, we, we don't necessarily know everything that happened any more so than everybody else in this particular case. We just know a couple things about Urban Meyer that I think are particularly important to note. One is what you just said. You cannot understate how much the Earl Bruce factor probably clouded a lot of his judgment on this. He's extremely loyal there. And this is his grandson. And so you're right. Like He wasn't keeping him on because he was an indispensable receivers coach. He was keeping him on because he was almost family. And number two, you know, obviously the whole crux of the story yesterday comes down to the fact that Shelly Meyer clearly knew what was going on with Zach Smith. And so everybody's asking, you know, well, did she tell him about it or not? I mean, we don't know for a fact that she did, but if you've been around that couple, been around Shelly, much more so than just your random college football coach's wife, you know, just how close they were as a couple and how involved she was in the football program at all the places that he's worked. And so of all the of all the coaches' wives to be have text messages published where she's saying, this guy scares me. You know, have you gotten a restraining order? This guy scares me. This is one of the last ones that I would say, well, maybe she didn't tell her husband. I'm sorry. Right. Not going to believe that. Yeah, and on top of that, by the way, we were talking about two weeks ago at Big Ten Media Days when Urban Meyer is asked, and pressed on some of these questions about what happened when and how did he handle it. He's talking about in 2009, you know, there's the first incident that we know of that happened at the University of Florida when both when Zach Smith was on his staff early on. And Urban Meyer volunteered that he told his boss and then he and Shelly, his wife, you know, got involved because it was a young couple and they talked about counseling. So it seems like a real stretch to think, that you have that relationship. This is somebody who's about as close to you as family as anybody on your staff. And then, as you said, there was the he scares me restraining order comments that Shelly Meyer's not going to tell her husband that and the follow up. That's just, 
seems odd to me. Now, what I, and I wrote about this in the column on, on the Athletic earlier today was it does seem weird to me that in 2009, Urban Meyer could have heard about an incident and told his boss, because at, presumably Jeremy Fuller, the Florida AD, because that's what you're supposed to do. And then if, in fact, he did know in 2015 of an incident, why he wouldn't have at least then told his boss at Ohio State, Gene Smith, if not the Title IX office, because that's what you're supposed to do, especially in light of the fact that the Sandusky case a scandal at Penn State happened with, you know, in that time frame. It was like happened after 2009, before 2015. And I've heard this from college football coaches. That Sandusky scandal was a wake-up call to any coach who didn't know about like the protocol of how to handle this stuff. I just it's it would really surprise me if Urban Meyer wouldn't have at least tried to cover his own butt when it comes to something like this. It's just I mean, what do you make of that part of it, Stu? It's what I wrote about today. I mean, we you, every time one of these things happens, you think, well, this will be the wake up call, you know. But after Penn State, there was Baylor, and after Baylor, now we find out about what Urban Meyer may have either enabled or or just. I'm not ready to say covered up, but certainly played a big role in. So, you know, it's 2018. Nobody's untouchable. And this is an issue. Violence, violence against women. That is, seems to be, you know, there are a lot of areas, obviously, where schools prioritize winning at all costs. This is not one of them. This is one where they have to draw the line. And it's going to be your career if you don't take these things seriously enough. And I'm telling you, and we talked about it last week, Something was off when he's talking at Big Ten Media Days. The same guy who has, you know, you've seen it, the picture of the wall at the football complex with the core values and in big writing, respect for women. You know, the guy who preaches this is at then, you know, basically at Big Ten Media Days, really, really downplayed the 2009 incident. Um, obviously tried to say that Brett, that the 2015 thing was basically fake news. It just... From the time he started saying that stuff, I just this this doesn't seem right. Something's off here, and now he may pay for it with his career. So, what do you say we bring on the man who knows the story better than anybody because he broke the story? All right, Brett. Thanks for joining us. You are all over the news, and rightly so. This was your story. I have a question for you. So, two weeks ago, we were at Big Ten Media Days in Chicago, and Urban Meyer and Ohio State had fired. Zach Smith the night before. Urban Meyer is pressed on what happened and what he knew when and, and that part of it. And then he goes and talks about how there was nothing to it in 2015 to that, to that report and says something along the lines of, you know, I don't know who makes that stuff up or, you know, something like that. You were sitting about 10 feet away from me. I was like a row behind you and over to the left. What's going through your mind when you hear that? Because the media never wants to be part of a story. Like, what are you thinking? Well, I was, I was pursuing the story at that point, but obviously I, I never envisioned it would lead to where it is now. But basically, for my purposes, that was the perfect quote. I couldn't have said, I couldn't have went up to Urban and said, Urban, can you say something? Because what he said was absolutely perfect. He was so cut and dried that he did not know about it. Because you guys remember Monday night, I reported about the 2015 incident, and now he's saying it didn't. It didn't happen. I made it up out of thin air. His direct quote was, who would create such a story? Well, I would create such a story because I had the police documents. So once that happened, what that made me do is it made me report more 
and you know follow the breadcrumbs, and then here we are waiting to see the ultimate fate of Urban Meyer. So that day, you know, I was in Chicago as well, and I wrote a column pretty critical of the way he was yep. talking about it. I mean, even before you get to 2015, he was he was pretty not dismissive, but almost no, kind of flippant about 2009. Dismissive. Yeah, yeah. So I, I agree. I know you can't give away all of your reporting, but kind of as much as you can, walk us through what happens between then and Wednesday when your story goes up on your Facebook page, which maybe have you explain why that was the case. And obviously, Stadium does the Kristen Balboni, who used to host the Facebook Live show that Bruce and I did a couple seasons ago, does the on-camera interview with Courtney Smith. So I guess probably a week or two before Big Ten Media Days, I first started looking into the Zach Smith domestic violence issues. And then I, through public record requests, found the information that I reported at Big Ten Media Days. And so basically, I was um, still trying to report see what I could find out. As you guys know, you keep making calls and, and looking for different things. So then when Urban did the, the quotes on Tuesday, all of a sudden, it, like, you know, red flags went up. Wait, this, this doesn't make, why in the world is he denying this? There's a police report, et cetera. I kept, kept reporting, kept looking around. Eventually, I was able to contact Courtney Smith. I tracked her down. I said, you know, I'd like to talk to you. She agreed to talk to me. I talked to her. First time I talked to her on the phone, we talked for two and a half hours. It was unbelievable details and just everything that she had gone through. At that point, the story was the abuse of Zach Smith against her former, you know, an ex-wife of the wide receivers coach. At that point, I had no clue what Urban Meyer did or didn't know. So we talked a couple more times on the phone, and I'm trying to write this story, and I basically... I knew as a journalist, I have to talk to her in person. I can't, this is not a phone interview. So I flew to Columbus. I spent three days there and I talked to her. I went over every detail that she gave me. I told her, I said, you, you don't have to convince me this is accurate. You have to convince everyone out there that's not going to believe your story. I need documents, emails, text messages, photos, whatever you have. And she provided over those. She provided all of those. And so I went through everything line by line okay, what date was this sent on? What day did you receive this? What, what's this from? And specifically so that there was no misunderstanding. I told her if she had any information that I could not verify that I was not going to report it. So at that time, when I finally was comfortable that I had, you know, went through all of, all of these potential, not issues, but made sure I had all my bases cover. Because again, I don't have 50 editors looking at this. You know, I'm basically on my own. So basically at that point and during that process, I guess, that's when it hit me was like, holy cow, Urban Meyer knew about this. But wait, he just said Tuesday he didn't know about it. So at that, so then kind of the, the shift of the story changed. That was never my intention. And then ultimately when I was finished reporting it, then Wednesday, that's when I was ready. I felt comfortable to go with it. And then I reported it on Facebook Wednesday morning. Brett, any part of the process, you and I work together at CBS, and as you said, you're working without a net. I mean, is essentially, is there any, <laughs> for you as, as somebody no, doing right. this largely on your own, where you're going, okay, you don't have the, the luxury of having a lot of editors and a lot of process. It's a little odd as somebody, you know, who also did, did posted some stories, but nowhere near of the consequence that you, that this one was on Facebook. Like, are you... 
like what was that part of it like for you as a journalist kind of going through it and going, I got a really heavy story. I'm going to post it in a place people are not sure of. There's going to be a level of skepticism with it. And just to make sure I'm as buttoned up as possible. I mean, are you, are you turning to other, I mean, who can you trust who you can say, Hey, can you give this a read? Can you, you know, bounce stuff off of how, right, how did you right. handle that part of it? Right. No, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm close friends with you guys and, you know, but I wouldn't be comfortable saying, Hey, can you look at my Zach Smith story? Cause I know as competitors, you guys are like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Hang up the phone and then try to get the story. So I did rely on a couple of friends and I basically bounced ideas off of them. I had them look at it. I said, if you have any red flags, uh, tell me, I don't care how small it is. If you see, if you see a comma in the wrong place, let me know. I, this has to be 100% accurate. I told Courtney multiple times, if I write the story and we have a hundred different items, documents, correct. And we have one that's incorrect. All anyone's going to remember is what's wrong. So because of that, I went to great pains to make sure that we didn't have any, didn't have any potential problems. Another thing, which I was very proud about, and I didn't actually realize it until I got done doing the story is there are no unnamed sources in this, in this report. There's no information that's not attributed to, to something. It's either a direct quote from Meyer or from Courtney Smith. It's either text messages. It's either photos. It's either police documents. It's either um, emails, et cetera, or it's direct quotes from, from various people. And, uh, you know, I, I took a great deal of pride about that because I know a lot of people are skeptical, skeptical when people report stuff from unnamed sources. I know I do that frequently, but something of this magnitude, I did not want anything from an unnamed source because I didn't think that was fair to uh, to all parties concerned. Hey, Brett, I got one other thing that just, you know, I watched you as we're taping this. It's Thursday. Uh, I watched you on SVP show last night. You know, I worked at ESPN. I didn't have the greatest exit as well. Also, full disclosure, but um, I know kind of how I didn't know that. Yeah. And and you know what it was like, because after I left ESPN, I worked with you. You know, exactly. You know how what that felt like probably before you got even got there where you have, I don't know if you, I wouldn't say yours was acrimonious. I don't know. But like, do you feel a level of vindication that as a reporter, they're having to, they're having to, to put you on their air. They're having to put you on the ticker and there's no getting around. They can't even hide it and say, you know, if you worked at SI, you worked at the athletic, you worked at Yahoo, they credit that they have to credit Brett McMurphy. It was like a unique situation. There's no hiding behind the agency that they, that they and it's not to say everybody at ESPN is petty and will do things like right, that. Right. But I mean, did you like how did that part of it feel for you as you're watching it on social media and seeing people go, "Wow, it took ESPN a long time to credit Brett McMurphy and get on this story and everything." Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's one of the benefits of being unemployed is that if you break news, there's no media outlet that you credit. They have to credit the individual. So you know, if you guys maybe in your futures down the road, keep that in mind. But um, but no, I mean, it's, you know, again, I talked to a lot of people that I'm close with and I said, hey, all these ESPN shows are reaching out. They want me to come on. Should I do the shows? And, you know, some of them are like, you know, F no, don't do it. And then others are like, yeah, I guess so. And I was going back and forth. Bottom line is the people that wanted me on the shows are mostly friends of mine. They had nothing to do with me being laid off. The company did. 
And obviously, you know, when I broke the story, a lot of these same people reached out to me and said, man, you're crushing it. I wish you were still here. I mean, they've got better things to do than send me some half-hearted congratulations text. So that meant a lot to me. And ultimately, you know, I guess going back to last year when I was fortunate enough to, to break the Scott Frost to Nebraska story in the middle of the, the UCF Memphis game and Steve Levy said credited our own Brett McMurphy, that kind of showed me right there that, you know, wow, what I learned from that is that you don't have to work at a huge media company to actually report news and be significant on Twitter. And when I got laid off 18 months ago, I figured I can sit around and do nothing for 18 months and then try to get a job or I can continue to report college football on Twitter or Facebook. And then hopefully that will make me more attracted to a future employer and help my chances of getting a job when my non-compete with ESPN expires on August 12th. Brett, one other thing for me, just like Stu had mentioned, Kristen, she's our buddy and she was uh-huh. a, a great colleague for us. She does the on-camera interview. Was there any part of you going, man, screw their non-compete. I only got a week left. This is the biggest story of my <laughs> career. I want to be the one they stick on camera and, and do it. And I can eat the week or whatever it is, you know, the 10 days and just let me be out there. Did you did you consider that? I'm under contract till August 12th, and I was going to abide by that. And uh, I want to make sure I get every penny from ESPN. So, as much as I, uh, you know, would like to have a huge story, when I started Stadium August 13th, I was, you know, I've been prepared to not work for a third party until August 13th. So, no matter how big the story was, I was just prepared to to go about this. And if, you know, if I would have this story story wouldn't have de- developed till after August 13th, and obviously I would have reported it for Stadium, but because I was able to report it before then, then that's when I reported it. So I guess, you know, I, I guess I didn't think about it, Bruce. I was just more, I mean, you know how you are. When you find out something, I have two immediate emotions. One is, oh, my gosh, I need to find this out. And the second emotion is, oh, wow, I wonder if Feldman already knows about this, or I know if Stu knows about this, or I know if Staples is onto this, or Dodd, or whoever. So basically, that was my thinking was, oh, my God, what do I have? These are public documents anybody could have. How come nobody has reported this? And then it's just, okay, now I need to be careful. I need to get the full story. And I reported it when it was ready, whether it was before August 13th or after August 13th. So, Brett, just a little bit of getting to the heart of the story. So I want to ask you something that just because Ohio State fans are asking it on Twitter, you felt confident enough to say in the story and in your tweets about the story that Urban Meyer knew in 2015. The text messages show us that Shelly Meyer certainly knew. We don't necessarily have a direct text saying from Urban or to Urban. What made you confident saying that? Well, Basically, in 2009, Urban Meyer admitted that him and Shelley counseled Zach and Courtney Smith when they were going through their domestic violence issues at the University of Florida. Let's go to 2015. I saw hundreds of text messages between Shelley Meyer and Courtney Smith. I saw in, in all hundreds of text messages, Shelley Meyer and Courtney Smith. Courtney Smith and other members, the wives of the coaching staff at Ohio State. They talked about Urban doesn't know what to do. Zach just went in and talked to Urban. Went on and on and on. You're right. I don't have a text from Urban Meyer that says I know about it. But I know all the text messages I saw. I saw all the pictures that were sent to the, to the wives of the coaches. I saw all of this information. 
And then you take that and factor in the fact, and you know this very well as anybody, Urban Meyer and Shelley have an unbelievable relationship. And Urban talked about it in Chicago, how close they are. He confides in her. her he's a soulmate. He relies on her for everything. You know, so obviously they share everything. So then we're supposed to believe that all the assistant coaches knew about it. All the secretaries knew about it. All the staff members knew about it in the Woody Hayes Athletic Center. By the way, Zach Smith's attorney was Larry James, who represented the Ohio State players in Tattoo Gate in 2011. He's also represented other Ohio State athletes that have been in NCA and criminal investigations. He knew about it. There were public documents from the Powell Police Department that, do- that documented the 2015 incidents. That was out there. All of these people knew about all this except Urban Meyer. Do I have any direct evidence he knew? I do not. But it would be, I don't see any way that he does not know about it when everyone around him knew all about it. Yeah, I feel the same way. And like you said, I think one thing that maybe stands out here is you're right. I mean, I've known Urban and Shelly Meyer since 2005, I believe. And she is as recognizable a coach's wife. She is around the football building. She works for Ohio State. And they're extremely close. You know, she is his confidant. So I think one of the, you know, of the text messages that you guys published, the one that really stands out to me is when she says to Courtney, he scares me. Yeah. Uh, Somebody. Haven't you got a restraining order? Yeah. Haven't the police seen the pictures? And the other thing, so I don't mean to interrupt, but I forgot to mention this. So they go through counseling in 2009. So now in 2015, Shelly Meyer has had conversations with Courtney. She's seen the picture. She has all these texts back and forth. Shelly knows, oh, my God, Courtney's going through this again. Poor girl. So she's not going to tell Urban about this when they both counseled this couple five or six years early, earlier in Gainesville. That's another reason I don't buy it. Do you, from what you understand, because uh, yesterday there was also a report from Cleveland.com about nine police reports starting in 2012 about domestic disputes. Is it your understanding that 2015 is the first time she reached out to Shelly about this? Is there any possibility she would have known about this earlier than that? Uh, I believe 2014 was the earliest. Um, there were no, yeah. The documents that I had, police reports I had, and I, I apologize. I didn't see what Cleveland.com reported that what was out there, but yeah, there could have been more police investigations. I'm not sure. Again, I know Zach Smith was never, never convicted. And the the thing is, is that, you know, Ohio state fans, I guess are upset is, well, this guy never got convicted. Why should Urban Meyer suffer the consequences? Well, based on the language in his contract, based on title nine, based on the school's sexual misconduct policy, you don't have to be convicted of something if you know about it. If you have any knowledge of it or suspect any knowledge of domestic violence or any issues like this, you have to notify your, notify your supervisor. Certainly, if Urban Meyer said he didn't know about it, then either A, he's lying, or B, he's not lying, excuse me, and B, he's lying and he did tell his supervisor. And if that happens, then I wonder if Gene Smith is also, also a casualty of this. I want to preface that with saying I have no information at all, none, from Courtney Smith or anybody else that Gene Smith was aware of any of this. I'm just saying if Urban Meyer did forward this information to Gene Smith, does he get drawn into this also whenever Ohio State makes an announcement 
on the status of Urban Meyer. Right. And, um, you know, you mentioned the Title IX reporting requirements. Short, even even if you put that aside, and that's a, it's, it's a very big issue, but at the end of the day, coaches fire assistant coaches for all number of reasons. They're, oh, he wasn't a good enough recruiter, yeah. or his offense isn't producing. So you don't need a, to know that somebody was convicted of something or charged with something to fire them. If you have any inkling that the guy is dangerous, that he, you know, he's volatile, he's dangerous. Certainly, if you know that that he's that his ex-wife says she he was hitting her, why was this guy still ar- allowed to be around eighteen-year-old men? You know, you've got on your wall your core values: respect women. You know, this guy isn't. So he could have. I feel like he could have cut him loose at any time from t- two thousand fifteen on. And we wouldn't necessarily be in this situation here, but he's stuck by this guy, whether it was loyalty, uh, respect to Earl Bruce, loyalty, either the fact that he's stuck with him all this time or vice versa. And, you know, and I wrote about it today to a fault. And then this is something we see. This is something we saw with Joe Paterno with our Bryles, any number of situations where for some reason coaches, they live in such a bubble and they're more inclined to, believe the people around them who they're close with than Courtney Smith or the police who kept showing up at the, you know, any number of things are actually going on out there in the real world. Well, I think you hit on a lot of it with Earl Bruce. I think I would add to that, that I think that's why he was hired at Florida was because of the relationship with Earl Bruce. I think that's why Zach was hired when urban returned to coaching in 2012. That's why he hired Zach Smith. I asked Courtney if, if he knew about this and all the coaches' wives knew about all this and all the assistant coaches knew about this, why in the world would he stay on the staff? And Courtney said, Zach once told me if he ever got fired and this all comes out, I'll take everyone down at Ohio State with me. I asked her what he, information she thought he had, and she didn't know any specifics. And whether that's a legitimate threat by Zach or he was just blowing smoke, I guess we'll find out soon enough. But maybe that answers part of the reason of why, if you're Urban Meyer, you keep somebody like that on his staff. Because, again, like you said, he was, he's just another assistant coach. And I, I had a chance at Big Ten Media Days to talk to a lot of the Ohio State media. And they, they basically said, you know, that Zach Smith was, was basically an average coach. There was nothing special about him. You know, there, he could not that that's, he's a bad coach, but basically he could, there's a, 200 coaches that could be doing what he's doing. So if you've got all these issues going on, do you, because of loyalty, if you're Urban Meyer, are you that loyal to Earl Bruce that you basically risk your entire career on, on taking care, shielding, protecting this, this assistant coach? That's the one question I would want to ask Urban Meyer. I guess the first question would be, why did you say you didn't know about it? And then the second question is, why didn't you simply just do something in 2015? Well, and as Courtney alluded to in the interview, Zach is probably going in there and telling him and, and, you know, telling him all these bad things about her and why he should, you know, why nobody should believe her. And that's going to influence things as well. So, look, these situations are nuanced, they're difficult, but when there's this much of a track record, when there's pictures, when there's text messages, you know, there's a reason he was put on administrative leave yesterday in terms of whether he not he gets fired I mean, you'll see if you agree but i think when you hire a law firm or, or investigators i hate to put it this this kind of cynically but in a lot of cases what these schools do this is all about protecting the institution and liability You're right. you, you can almost 
pay you're paying them you know all these billable hours basically to find out what you want them to find out so if they feel like this is a huge liability for the school so much so that they're willing to sacrifice their national championship coach then they will come to some sort of conclusion that he was responsible for this and if they feel like that's not the case that they need to protect urban meyer and keep him as their football coach I could totally see a scenario where they do their interviews and they come out with a report that says lots of people should have known better. We're going to put in safeguards to prevent this from happening in the future, but we have no evidence to believe that Urban Meyer, you know, willfully didn't report something to Title IX. I disagree. Okay. I think that they get rid of him. It's either going to be a dismissal, a firing, or a settlement. Because if you're Ohio State, you have to prove that Urban Meyer did not know that there, he knew about these allegations, these domestic violence incidents. So how do you do that? You have to go through six years of cell phone records for Urban Meyer, for his coaching staff, for Zach Smith, maybe even for Shelley, all the assistant coaches. You have to go through all that information. And even after you go through all that information, and I don't know how long that would take, but even we'll say it takes a week. I'm guessing it would take couple of months but we'll say it takes a week so after a week you've gone through this we couldn't find anything urban said he didn't do it and you know what urban you're gonna you're gonna stay our coach and then you know what a week later some journalist uncovers documentation evidence whatever that shows urban meyer knew about 2015 he's fired immediately and now the school is going to get sued for bringing urban meyer back when they had knowledge that from reports or whatever, you know, whatever they want to call my Facebook report, that there was evidence that he knew about it. You brought him back knowing all the issues that were out there. And so now the school is susceptible to even bigger lawsuits for bringing back a guy that you should have known, uh, you know, violated all of these clauses in his contracts in Title IX. And also, I think it's pretty, pretty obvious Shelly Meyer violated Title IX and the school sexual misconduct policy because she is an employee of Ohio State. She works for the College of Nursing. So I don't see any way he survives. I really don't. You may be right. I guess what I was saying was that what you just, the scenario you just laid out assumes, you know, and maybe rightfully so, that the people doing this investigation will be given access to all that and told to go through all that. You know, we've seen situations, I know, with Pepper Hamilton and Baylor where they put out the report and they're like, wait a minute, they didn't even bother to talk to X, Y, and Z. You know, if they do right. this comprehensive investigation, as you say, then yeah, I, I don't see how he would survive. There's going to be some. Well, I think that I think they have to, Stuart, because you're bringing a guy back. This is, you know, I think obviously it's not. I'm not comparing it to Baylor, but this is a different situation because you're 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 deciding to keep Urban Meyer. I talked to Power Five AD last night. And I'm say, I said, how do you go about this investigation? I said, what, what information can you get? And he's like, he goes, well, you can, get, you can get private phones. You can get information off private phones if it's used in employee business or whatever. And obviously, if you're Ohio State, you're going to go to Urban Meyer and say, you know, we need permission to get your phone records going back to 2005. And if Urban says, well, you can't have them, then they're going to say, well, you're fired. So they can do that to every assistant coach. Technically, Shelly's employed by the university. I guess they can go through her phone. You know, I just think, again, it's risk versus reward. Obviously, Myers is one of the best coaches in the country, but is it worth the risk to go through all this and say you didn't find anything 
and then take a chance that something surfaces later that he didn't know about it. I just think, I think they reach a settlement because of what he's done with the university and he agrees to step aside and Ryan Day takes over and then Urban goes to the NFL or takes uh, a year off or goes back to ESPN. Who knows? I mean, if, if they can uncover all that, it's chilling to think about because as we know, people always put stuff in writing that they probably shouldn't or that they'll regret having put in writing. What they could find, not just with this, but who knows what else might they might kind of inadvertently uncover if you go through that many years of correspondence. So, yeah, I don't like his chances of returning. It's crazy. Who would have guessed, I don't know, a week ago that we'd be talking about, you know, this probably universally believed to be the second most powerful coach in college football possibly being done. But... I would say that once once Ohio State did not put out any sort of immediate response to your story and it went, you know, just they went totally silent and went on and on like that, I started to think he was going to get fired on Wednesday. So then they announced they're putting him on leave and that totally makes sense to approach it that way. But man, what a burden right. you have to clear to then justify bringing him back. So Right, and I think it's at this point the lawyers are just trying to figure out how they're going to do this. Yeah. I, I really do. I don't see... And the other thing, which is sad, we really haven't discussed this side of the, the story much, which is unfortunate, which is the main reason I initially started this, this reporting, is how does Ohio State look as far as domestic violence, which what's currently going on there at the school, all the sexual assault cases that have happened in other Big Ten schools up to this point, it's certainly not a good look. And I'm not minimizing that. But certainly there's a heightened sensitivity to domestic violence now. There should be. It should be even greater. And so if you bring back a coach who, whether he said he knew or not, the, the perception is that he knew about all this stuff and basically didn't do anything, how, do, how does that look for a university, especially in today's climate? As many have pointed out in the last 24 hours, and we'll end on this, Jim Trestle was fired in 2011 or forced out. Yeah. <laughs> For lying about for lying knowing that guys got <laughs> tattoos for memorabilia. If, if, if it comes, if they can prove that Urban Meyer lied about knowing that his wide receivers coach was abusing his wife or ex-wife, like it's not even, it's not even remotely in the same ballpark of seriousness. And it really puts in perspective how much our view of what constitutes a scandal has changed in the last, I always say it was post, you know, it was Penn State. They reset the bar because literally three months before that, oh, yeah. everybody is freaking out because Miami players, because of Nevin Shapiro, is Miami going to get the death right. penalty? And that all seems so quaint after what we've gone through with Penn State, Baylor, others, now this. So, Brad, I'm glad you were able to come on. I know you're very, very in demand right now, so I'm glad you were able to come on. And um, sorry, Bruce had to drop off there at one point if you haven't noticed that yet you haven't heard his voice in about ten minutes. <laughs> but you know, obviously. Keep up the good work, and I will, uh, well, first of all, also, we should just say, again, you, you mentioned it in there, you'll be starting your new role with Stadium on what date? August 13th. Can you just tell really quickly what, because I think most people maybe never heard of Stadium before yesterday, what you'll be doing no, there? Yeah, it's, it's basically a digital sports network. It's a sports network for cord cutters. You can basically go to watchstadium.com on any device and watch live programming, They've got uh, broadcast deals to televise Mountain West and Conference USA football games, also those leagues. In basketball, Horizon League, I think, some other basketball leagues. Jeff Goodman will be joining me as our college basketball insider. And basically, um, 
you know, it's uh, I'll report college football like I did at ESPN just for a different outlet and, uh, you know, have the freedom to do a lot more things. I may do sideline reporting for some games. I may be third man in the booth. Uh, I may get kicked out of halftime. Who knows? <laughs> but um, it'll be a fun opportunity, a chance to do a lot of different things that I didn't have previously have the chance to do earlier in my career. Okay, well, let make sure if that's the case, the sideline reporting part, make sure you get some tips from Bruce on <laughs> what to do when it rains. How to wear and there's a, a hat. Yeah, how to wear a hat and not look like an idiot on national television, what to do when there's a four-hour lightning delay, and all the other great things I've gotten to watch him go through the last few years. <laughs> I will be asking him. All right, thanks so much, Brett. Anytime, Stu. Thanks, buddy. All right, Stu, we appreciate Brett for joining us. And why don't we get to the mailbag? As always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Let's just start off with one more Ohio State-related one from Kevin Sabar Jr. in Rockwell, Texas. Hey, guys. Love the pod, and Bruce still used Meat Market in my daily work with fraternities. And Stu, love the All-American. Thank you. My question center is on Ryan Day. Tell us more about his track to this role. Did the administration pull him back into the staff? I know the Titans wanted him as OC because they wanted a Lincoln-Riley situation for the Buckeyes or because they wanted a Matt Luke situation as a failsafe. I don't think it was the second part, but I do think maybe it caught some people by surprise that it wasn't Greg Schiano, it wasn't Kevin Wilson, it wasn't Larry Johnson. Why is Ryan Day the guy being tabbed as the interim coach? You know, I think he's the guy that a lot of people look at is along those lines of Lincoln Riley. He's a Chip Kelly protege. He actually grew up around Chip Kelly. He's younger, but that you know his family was very uh, close to Chip's family. He was an assistant coach on, on the staff. Chip was an offensive coordinator at UNH, and then he went to BC. He actually was with Urban Meyer for a year at UF, and then he had some time as a coordinator, I think, at Temple in BC before he went with Chip to both the Eagles and the Niners. I've, I've known him for a while. He's a really smart guy. He passed up a chance to be the head coach at Mississippi State to stay at Ohio State. He also passed up that Titans job. For people who have been around him, they're very impressed by him. I think if he ends up being the head coach for the whole year and they can make a run at the playoff, I think he would position himself well. I know a lot of people see Matt Campbell as a potential guy if, in fact, Ohio State does need a new head coach. But I would not underestimate Ryan Day's chances. I mean, like I said, he's very well thought of. What's interesting is you mentioned a couple of names, and I think all three of those guys you know, Larry Johnson had been an interim at Penn State, and certainly Greg Schiano and Kevin Wilson. I think when, with Ohio State coming out of the situation that it is right now, I think Kevin Wilson, his departure at from Indiana definitely introduced some questions, and certainly Greg Schiano, there was a real dust-up with all the Tennessee stuff. I think that was something that I don't think Gene Smith wanted to answer a lot, of, lot more questions. I think one other name to keep in mind a lot of uh, on the staff who a lot of people think will be a, a really rising star coach is Alex Grinch, who's also on that staff. So they had a lot of options there. Do you think if the Greg Schiano Tennessee mess never happens, that he's the one being elevated right now? I do. Yeah, I really do. I think it would be a no-brainer. I, I just don't think they want to. Like he's the one Urban leans on the most on football stuff there, and I just don't think that given Ohio State's handling of this, I don't think they wanted to to have to deal with all the stuff that would come around because that Tennessee thing was a media firestorm. If you read between the lines, the fact that they went, you know, cold, silent yesterday for about six hours and then the 
the press release came you know today uh thursday they announced that they're shutting down all media access to the coaches and players and practice once camp opens i think a crisis communications firm or or something like that has gotten involved and i'm sure had something to say about no you don't want to deal with having to answer questions about shiano even though he didn't personally do anything wrong in that Tennessee situation. It was what was done to him. But you just don't want to deal with those headaches. You don't want to add any more headaches to what is already a extremely difficult situation from a PR standpoint. So, Next question. Next question. Is from Lewis Chilton in Pasadena. Hi, Bruce and Stewart. The two teams I follow most, Tennessee and UCLA, have new head coaches this year. As a Vols alum, I'm happy that Jeremy Pruitt seems to have real momentum and is tearing it up in recruiting, especially considering we lost a Vandy for two straight years as a ucla ticket holder i'm thrilled chip is our coach but what's up with the sunbelt level recruiting i know chip is a master tactician but how in the world is every service saying every recruiting service i think he means saying kelly is being out recruited by herm edwards how concerned should bruin fan be is it because he doesn't have willie lyles anymore i don't know <laughs> i don't you would know better than me my friend you're right there in la is and, I, and there's a similar situation going on where Florida, where people are freaking out, and this was my mailbag lead this week, Florida is ranked, I believe, you know, in the low 30s in recruiting. You would think a, a new coach coming in at a blue blood program like that would be kicking butt on the recruiting trail. Florida's off to a very slow start with Dan Mullen. Now, I don't know that UCLA would be uh, necessarily in that same category, but if you look back at Jim Mora's ten, time there, they were a regular top 15 to 20 recruiting program. So what do you think is going on with the slow start? You know what? I, when I, we had a little recruiting category on those state of the programs, and I did the UCLA one. And one of the things you heard a lot from coaches on the West Coast was that one of the things that ended up undermining what Jim Mora was doing was people thought they recruited off of lists too much. And basically looked, oh, that's a four-star, that's a five-star. The antithesis of that is Chip Kelly. He could care less what rivals or 247 thinks of a recruit across the board. That's not him. He's, he was never that way. So I don't think he's worried that some guys that he signed are three-star guys. I don't think he's worried that, I mean, I know of a specific example of last year, there was a very, very highly recruited, highly ranked guy that I think he had the opportunity to, to, to get a commitment from. And I don't think he wanted, like, just, I don't think he believed that kid's mindset was what he wanted in his program thought maybe the kid was un- entitled or just didn't seem to have the right perspective. And he was like, basically passed on the kid. And I think that's, you know, important to him. And I think we'll, I suspect we'll see probably more of that when it comes to certain guys, because, and this will be an interesting kind of dynamic because when Chip Kelly left, left Oregon, it was right around the time Twitter recruiting really boomed. You know, in 2000, when he became a head coach, Twitter wasn't really much of a thing for for uh, anybody. It was, you know, whatever, 2008. Then when he left, it's it started to take hold. But I think it's really taken hold with how many followers people have, and there's just more people on it. And I think you see more probably a level of entitlement and celebrity comes to it. And I don't think he's going to want to have much part of that. Yeah, and let's not forget, at Oregon, they weren't bringing in top-notch recruiting classes and five stars left and right when he was the coach there, and they are winning a lot of games. If at the end of the day, some of the things he values most at certain positions, I mean, with speed being number one, two, and three, might not necessarily um, translate into high recruiting rankings, you know? And especially in California, where 
um, recruiting analysts, I assume you tell me are maybe look favor more the traditional, like the traditional drop back quarterbacks, the, the guys that play in the kind of systems that West coast schools traditionally play, you know, it may impact the recruiting rankings as well. So I guess we're both saying don't read too much into it. Yeah. I mean, look, I would go back to his first offer commit that he took last year was a guy, Kaz Allen, who was a touchdown machine in the state of California last year, but is quote unquote seen as an undersized guy in a lot of people's eyes, but he's the fastest player, maybe the fastest player in the Pac-12 right now. He's the fastest player in California last year, and he seems to fit that the Anthony Thomas kind of dynamic can do a bunch of stuff for you on the offense, but he was only a three-star guy, and again, that was the first guy he really went after, so once upon a time he got a commitment he was the first one to really go after hard marcus mariota i think espn and marcus mariota is like 139th best quarterback in that class so i think he's going to trust about his evaluations and i wouldn't i wouldn't panic at this point if i was a ucla fan i would see you know what it leads to okay mark asks a question that was a really popular one at media days conference media days the last couple weeks also mark says he's a new subscriber to the athletic great stuff thank you mark with the new eligibility rules allowing four games played before redshirt is officially burned, do you foresee teams using true freshmen early in the year to see what they have and potentially as a season-long game changer, or do you think they'll be brought in during the latter part of the season to give them time to acclimate and also keep starters fresh for any postseason push? And I think, Bruce, in talking to various coaches, the answer is both, right? It just kind of depends on if the kids that they feel are ready to play early or not. Yeah, I mean, I would... I had a conversation with Dana Holgerson at Big 12 Media Days, and we talked about David Long, who has turned out to be their best defensive player, and he's a linebacker, and he wasn't a big recruit, but he's kind of he's undersized. And he said they had a really good group of linebackers that year. He goes, but we're watching this kid on scout team, and goes by week seven or week eight, we're like, Jesus, we cannot block this guy. And he's looking around. He, he's like, you know what? I think in retrospect, they would have used him on special teams because he's like, this guy is like a demon. And... You know, they would have done that at the end of the year. And I think what uh, Mark says is right with, you know, how long it takes certain kids to acclimate to college. And I think it takes staffs a little while to figure out what they have and for guys to develop. I think I agree with you, but I think it'll probably be more likely in the latter half of the season. And in addition, when you have some injuries and you you can have guys who you think are physically and mentally ready to plug in and, and step up. And I think we'll probably see that. Yeah, and special teams, you know, I think is where there's going to be a lot of opportunities to get guys on the field. But, you know, there is going to definitely be some management involved in this. We talked about, I believe we talked about the, how this plays in with Jalen Hurts and Tua. And, you know, if he's going to, if there's any possibility that Jalen Hurts might transfer, he might not want to play past four games. So there's that you're going to have to manage. And, you are going to want to not use up the four games if you think you may need the guy late in the season. I don't know. As, as major a change as this is, and obviously, you know, universal, I've ne- not yet heard one coach say, oh, this is a bad idea. They're all universally in favor of it. But they also don't seem to feel like it's going to change that much for them. The guys that would have played earlier are going to play early. The guys that wouldn't, I think maybe that's where there's a change. Maybe they come in late in the season and you don't worry about burning their red shirt. But it's not like it's not like there's some drastic change to their philosophy about whether freshmen are ready or not. I'd agree. Yeah. Next question is from Brooklyn, New York. Do you live there once? Greg Seelig. 
Gentlemen, I'm curious to find out if Texas will be able to establish an offensive identity. Their fall from prominence has been due to the fact that they can't fix that side of the ball. Tom Herman is yet has not yet shown an ability to establish one at Texas, though it is still early. My question is, do you think it is, A, Herman's offensive philosophy not matching the kind of recruits generally found in Texas, B, not having an offensive coordinator that can bring out the best on that side of the ball, or C, not landing the right QB yet? Simply, will Texas ever be good on offense is Tom? I'm so confused. Has Tom Herman been the coach there for five years already? I know. One it's year. Been He's been there one year. year. No, he didn't find the offensive identity in year one, but um, a lot of coaches don't. I think that, you know, he's got a big enough track record at this point as an offensive coach to know that it's not really, I don't worry about scheme or strategy with Tom Herman, but you do have to have the players. And if you look back to last season, they could not run the ball. Is that, you know, not having a, a, um, especially after they lost Deontay Foreman, not having any sort of game-breaking running back back there and needing to get one on the program? Was it offensive line play? I'm not exactly sure, but he will adapt to whatever he has there. And of course, the quarterback, I mean, having not yet fully committed to either Sam Ellinger or Sam Bussell, but I think it seemed to me that Ellinger was going to eventually be the quarterback of the future. Like, I'd be surprised if he's not the main quarterback there this season, wouldn't you? Probably. I think he fits more with what Tom what Tom Herman wants to do. I mean, he had described him to me when he first got there as similar to JT Barrett and body types and maybe not a game-breaking Braxton Miller runner, but can hit some runs and is physical. And so there was that option. I did think it was interesting. I was at Big 12 Media Days, and he got asked about his play caller, and he was exceptionally noncommittal about it in that regard. And We'll see what that means. We ha- Our crew has them week one at Maryland. That is a fascinating game because the Terps beat them last year on the road. This year it is at FedEx Field where the Redskins play. And they have not an easy schedule. I mean, they have USC a couple of weeks later. I mean, if you're, if you're, I'm not saying this is anything like a hot seat thing, but if you're Texas, you really, really need to get off on a pretty good start and get some momentum there. I mean, everybody certainly does, but I just don't think you want to stub your toe against Maryland in, in week one. I just want to go ahead and yet again uh, apologize for the sound quality of this podcast episode. It's uh, happening on both our ends. I had to relocate to a different part of the house because of a construction project going on here. Bruce, you're cutting in and out a little bit on Skype. I don't know why. But anyway, you know, we'll get this right one day. Whether that day will be next week or next year, we'll figure it out at some point. Moving on, Stu. John in Canton, Pennsylvania. Not to dwell on ESPN's ridiculous national title winner rankings, but it got me thinking. That USC team that lost to Texas was awesome, as was the Miami team that lost to Ohio State, and they were probably better than half the teams that won titles. What team that didn't win titles in the past 20 years would make your list of the top 20 teams in the past 20 years? Bruce, my 11-year-old boy, and I listened to the Audible together as part of our father-son college football bonding time. Cool it with the F-bombs, man. John, I am sorry to you, and I'm sorry to him. When I when I read that, I was like, I kind of winced because I should know better. I blame Stu for springing upon that stupid ESPN, uh, <laughs> quote-unquote, analytics. I mean, because whatever. I'm not going to go down that road because I'll probably end up cursing again, but... It's a great question, and so here's the thing. The 2002 Miami team and the 2005 SC team 
were incredibly hyped teams because they were coming off national championships and had got, they both ended up winning 34 games in a row. So obviously in real time, that's why you were hearing them talked about as the greatest teams of all time. That being said, in both cases, but I'll just focus on the USC team, it became pretty obvious that they didn't have great defenses. Like they had the start, both K teams, you know, USC, Liner, Bush, Lendale White, Dwayne Jarrett, like no question, huge offensive star power. But the moment I realized, I realized that 05 USC team was not necessarily a shoe-in to win the national title was when Fresno State ran all over them and Reggie Bush basically had to save the day. I don't know. I can't remember if you were there. Why would I? It was 16 years ago, but I was at the Miami-Virginia Tech game at the end of the 02 season. I think the final score was like 52-45. They didn't have great defenses. So they would not actually be my answer here. My answer, and I'll be curious if you agree, like the, the team I would be most likely to put in there that did not win a championship is actually a fairly recent one. The 2016 Alabama team that lost in the national title game to Clemson, which honestly may have been Nick Saban's best Alabama team, but just had a terrible fourth quarter and Deshaun Watson was Superman and Hunter Renfro as well. But I mean, just think back to that season. They'd crushed everybody in the SEC. Their defense scored some ridiculous number of defensive touchdowns. That was Jonathan Allen, Dalvin Tomlinson, Ashawn Robinson. Just trying to remember off the top of my head. They all blend together sometimes. Minka Fitzpatrick, Marlon Humphrey, just an unbelievable defense, and Jalen Hurts, as much criticism as he gets, was the true freshman starting quarterback, and Scarborough, and um, Damian Harris, like, one quarter, basically, put was the difference between that team being discussed as one of the all-time greats and not. Yeah, I'm going to, since you went that route, I'm going to go with a different Miami team, and that would be the 2000 Miami team. They lost early in the year at Washington. They ended up having three top 10 wins. Now, their schedule wasn't anywhere near as good as the one that followed the next year. But that was still a loaded team. Butch Davis was the head coach. That was the group that decided to come back, most of them. Now, on the defense, as good as they were the next year, I mean, Dan Morgan, to me, was more productive than Ray Lewis. He's probably the, as good a linebacker as I think Miami had. And he was kind of the one of the turnaround guys of that program because he played early on. He was on that team. Obviously, Ed Reed, you had a ton of guys who ended up playing in the NFL. The backfield was ridiculously loaded with Clinton Portis there and and just really, really deep. I don't know. That team ended up playing number seven. Uh, they didn't. Florida State got to go to the national title, even though Miami beat the what was uh, a number one FSU team in the Orange Bowl. And then they beat a number two Virginia Tech team pretty handily by 20 points. And then they they blew out Florida, who was number seven. I would put them in the running just because I know how talented. The nucleus of that team was essentially, minus Dan Morgan, the nucleus of the team that I think most people think was the greatest team of, of uh, recent college football history. Yeah, I mean, the 2000 Miami team, I was there when they beat Florida State with Chris Wenke. That was, that was the, you know, as I think most people now think of them as the prelude to the one team. Just think if there had been a four-team playoff that year, they would have been in it. Would it would have been Oklahoma, FSU, Miami, and Washington? Yeah, I would think so, yeah. Could have settled that thing on the field. I have to make one correction. Ashawn Robinson was gone by 2016, but that great Alabama defense that forced all those turnovers and scored all those touchdowns. Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne, Dalvin Tomlinson, Tim Williams, uh, Ryan Anderson, Rashawn Evans, Reuben Foster, Marlon Humphrey, Minka, Ronnie Harrison, 
pretty damn good. Um, yeah, I remember being in the locker room of that after that team lost, and credit to Tim Williams, he was he was very media friendly. Whereas a couple other people were like about as miserable as any locker room I've, I I can remember being in in probably the last decade. You know, just it was you know it was a it was a bunch of guys who were I think looked like they were devastated in how it would be. They had because you'd been in locker rooms where teams have lost national titles. This one, I think, was it almost was reeling from it. It just seemed like they were in shock, a lot how, of those guys. How could they not be? Think about it. That team was one second away. The touchdown was with one second left, the Deshaun Watson, Hunter Renfro touchdown. They were one second away from finishing 15-0. and Nobody has yet done that in, the, uh, in this playoff era. And I, there's no doubt in my mind we would be sitting here. They would have put out that list. would have put out that list, and they would have been right in the discussion. But uh, analytics, dude. What about the analytics? What would the analytics have said? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I still, I'm still looking, <laughs> still waiting to get the numbers behind that. I think they would have been very high in the analytics. But anyway, there's an old line that you would hear. I feel like it's a baseball line. Maybe it's a Tom Lasorda line. Is like there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. What category is quote analytics go into? I don't want to now. I don't want to go there. I use advanced statistics in my writing all the time. I am definitely not the old crusty guy. Do you at least show a formula? What do you at least show your math? Well, that's the thing. If you're going to cite analytics, show me the math. Show me the formula. You know, Bill Connolly shows all of that data. Half of it doesn't make any sense, but at least he's showing what the data is. You can't just randomly throw out the word analytics. In fact, we got an email. I didn't end up using it, but some grand conspiracy theory that because ESPN owns the Longhorn Network that they propped up the 2005 Texas team. I'm not going to agree with that, but if you don't show the numbers, you can pretty much make that list on anything. Actually, when I was researching this uh, mailbag answer I did about this, I just popped into, I was trying to find the article from last week and I Googled like ESPN 2001 Miami 2005 Texas. And look, as you and I know, editors and writers come and go and whatnot, but at various times over the last 10 years or so, ESPN has named 2004 USC was named the greatest team of that decade. And then 2001 Miami at some point earlier this decade was named the great, I feel like they were named the greatest national champion or something like that. So it just changes by the year. Our old friend Jason Gorluski's back. Bruce and Stewart, you guys rule. What are the odds that Georgia gets through the year without Fromm or Fields transferring? With the exception of injury, is there any other way this plays out? It's a good question. I mean, because it's kind of lost. It gets lost a little bit because of what's going on in in Alabama. But I don't know. I, I mean, I don't. I don't see Justin Fields overtaking Jake Fromm in this. I, I feel like where they went, and also looking at their schedule, like similar to Alabama, I don't think they're going to get tested very often. So I think they can play both. But I. I don't know. I don't know what the next move is if you're Justin Fields. Justin Fields, having seen him and talked to a lot of people about him, has like three and out kind of talent, meaning three years and go to the NFL. So if he transfers, does that mean, you know, he plays plays 2018 at Georgia and then transfers someplace else and then plays one year and lights it up and then moves on? I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm – I'm just as curious to see what happens in Athens because he's so talented as I am as what's going on in Tus- Tuscaloosa. And Clemson. But those are three different... It's interesting that those three teams all have these kind of unique quarterback situations, but they are a little bit different. 
Jalen Hurts has given you, for all his wins and everything he's done, has given you reason to criticize his passing ability. Uh, certainly Kelly Bryant has. Jake Fromm had a fantastic freshman season. There's nobody that would be seeing her right now going, well, you know, I, I Justin Fields, highly ranked quarterback, he's definitely going to go in there and beat him out. Like, there's no reason to think that right now. Also, Justin Fields committed there knowing that. You know, it was not like a Jacob Eason situation where he committed two years ago. He, he uh, committed to Georgia pretty late in the process. So, when Eason was still there. So, I think Fromm's the guy this year. I guess the bigger question, and I don't, if he, you're right, it would be really weird from a career standpoint for him to sit out a year and then go ahead and sit out another year. So, I think 2019. We'll see where we are then. A lot could happen between now and then. But it is, you do wonder, would Justin Fields sit, be the backup for two years? Usually a guy with that kind of recruiting hype would not. Stu, next question from Scott Butler. Gents, first question. Oh, that means there's more than one. Comparing Boise State, San Diego State, and Fresno against UCF, Houston, and Memphis, which is the stronger top of the conference? Hint. The answer is obvious. It is in the Mountain West, as Boise has everything returning, as does Fresno. And San Diego State has the entire O-line and most of their 2D back on defense. Why did he ask us the question if he already knows the answer? I, um, by the way, I agree with Scott Butler. I do, too. I agree with him on that, too. I think the American has separated itself lately in the last few years as the premier group of five conference, so much so that they want to be called a power six conference. But when you look at the... I think maybe this answer is a little different if Scott Frost is still at UCF, but he's not. So they're not necessarily, I mean, the preseason poll came out today, and they were 21st or 22nd. I think boy, that's a quite a trio with Boise State, San Diego State, and Fresno. I think Boise State is my, uh, would be my New Year's Six pick going into the year. I think the, Fresno is definitely capable of it. San Diego State has shown that they're in the mix as well. Now, if you're looking at the whole conference, you know, the, the Mountain West the last few years has been just pitiful. Bottom, back end of the conference. But top of the conference, sure, I'll agree with that. Scott Butler also asked a question I will answer for him. Is Comcast dropping FS1? Are they doing it before the season? I cannot find confirmation. If so, I need to make a change in providers now. So this came up at Big Ten Media Days last week. It's not that they're dropping FS1. It's that the whole Big Ten contract with them is up in the air. And apparently, and I did not realize this, in addition to the question of the Big Ten network, Comcast also pays a fee to televise Big Ten games on FS1. So there's a possibility if you're a Comcast customer, you could actually lose those Big Ten games. That's the issue at play right now. Is it just posturing? Is it is there actually a real threat of this happening? Who knows? But, you know, I'll tell you this much. I moved to this new house in late June and Comcast is the main cable provider and I did not get them because I already knew they had dropped Big Ten network in California. So that wasn't going to happen. Well, thank you, Stu. I'll ask you this last one from Brandon okay. Brandon Fries or Fries F R I S. Hey guys, love this show. My question is about the future of Georgia Tech and Paul Johnson. As a Georgian and as a UGA fan, I always wondered why Georgia Tech didn't have a big enough footprint following their early '90s successes. It's a big, dynamic city. Its academics are excellent. Hotbed of football recruiting. The hiring of Paul Johnson was initially very popular, but it sputtered badly. Now the league is caught up with its offense and its recruiting is unbelievably bad. My question, what is the future of Paul Johnson at Georgia Tech? You know, I, I agree with a lot of the things he said. Eh, I'd always heard from people who recruit in Atlanta. They're like, man, they think Georgia Tech is a sleeping giant for a lot of the reasons that Brandon alluded to. I don't know. Paul Johnson's been there a long time. He's a really good coach. But there's, 
you know, as he said, those challenges, I mean, I think he can be good enough to not get fired, but there's also some interesting things that are going to happen this year rules-wise, and maybe this is a good place to kind of interject some of them. You won't see wide receivers cut blocking anymore. I think there's a lot of adjustments that have been made, even on, let's say, if you have an H-back coming across to what looks like almost a crack on a, on a defensive end. There's a lot of stuff that I think Georgia Tech has been very good at, and a lot of their run teams have been good at that may make it a little harder to do some of the things they do. I don't know. This is a this is a desirable job, and Paul Johnson's done a good job, but he's been there a long time. I'm Paul Johnson has been the head coach of Georgia Tech for 10 seasons now, and although he indicates that the conference has cut up their offense and whatnot, I mean, over the last four seasons, it's been a little over the map. But 2014, 11-3, beat Dak Prescott in the Orange Bowl. I don't think anybody was trying to run him out of town then. Then they had that precipitous drop to 3-9 and nine the next season, but then right back up to 9-4 and four in 2016. Last year, 5-6. and six. So they've been all over the map. But I don't. I, what I would agree with him is that there's just no buzz about that program. Oh, wow, what a pun I just did. <laughs> there's no buzz about the Yellow Jackets. Uh, they've, they've, they've taken the sting out of that, all the sting out of that program. Should I keep going? No, please stop. Please stop. So I don't know. I don't know. It must be hard. It's probably hard to sell tickets. It's probably hard to recruit. There's just no excitement about Georgia Tech football. And now, obviously, the other school in the state is on fire right now. So I kind of wonder how much longer he'll be the coach. But I've kind of wondered that for about five years now. So I don't know. If they go 10-3 this year, I'm sure he'll be back for season number 12. Yeah, I think you. I think that's well said. I'd agree with that. All right. Very good questions, guys. You can send more to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We are going to go back to a Monday schedule starting next week. Hey, can I make one suggestion mailbag-wise? Yes. And I thought of it with Brandon. I, I've thought of it a few times whenever we see it. Hey, if, you're, if your name is not like something that's relatively – that we could use a pronunciation guide, just phonetically spell it out because we don't want to mis, mispronounce your names on here. Um, and that would be appreciative because I feel, I feel bad when I know I butcher a last name and I, I feel bad when I know Stu butchers a last name. That's a good idea. I like that. And we do get people doing that sometimes. But just unless your name is Smith or Brown or something like that, just assume that we're going to botch it and just go ahead and preemptively correct it. Hey, guess what? Teams are practicing. We've, we've already had a couple um, stories go up on The Athletic today, Thursday, of first day of camp. And I think a lot of teams open on Friday. So I'm hoping that by the end of the weekend and on Monday, we'll have some news to chat about with that. And who knows what the next installment of the Urban Meyer story will be. Anything else? No, enjoy your football. We got an NFL game that's going on tonight. And I just saw a picture of Jimbo Fisher at his first uh, fall practice. So it's a good thing. All right, guys. We'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. And we'd like to thank Kevin and the Octaves for our intro song, Dangerous. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, what are you waiting for? Read both myself and Bruce and all our other great writers there. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and get 25% off. You can also follow our coverage at The Athletic CFB. You can follow me at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. We'll see you next time. Come on, get over here. Ah, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. We'll talk about.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.